Greetings to all here and all on live stream. Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 2. And you'll find it on page 2 in your few, few Bibles if you have it handy. For those at home, it won't be hard to find. Beginning at verse 4 and reading through to the end of chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasant to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into the four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Hebelah. And there, where there is gold, the gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third land is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to sleep, in, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought, him, sorry, brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, 
and they felt no shame. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the record from the beginning and the creation, for all that is involved in things that you have made and the things you have done. We thank you that you've given us this word. Help us to treasure it, to obey it, to realize that we are to be a reflection of your goodness and your grace. We pray that you would just help us as we now listen to the word being expounded, that you would bless Pastor Mark as he preaches, give us a heart to receive, to be willing to grow from it, to obey it, and to truly treasure your truth. We pray it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Frank. As I get started this morning, I do want to acknowledge uh, two groups of people who have been working on your behalf very well, that is very well together and also very well in terms of their actual work. Uh, and that, that is our church council and our missions team. Um, uh, the church council has been in discussion and prayer uh, for quite some time about if the Lord Jesus is calling us to support, sponsor, bring over an Afghan family or two. And um, it was just a delightful meeting that we had just recently when we all felt like the Lord was calling us to bring both families that were under consideration. And so we ask you to, to join us in that. Um, it is a step of faith for sure. And, um, but we believe that it is the Lord calling us to it and we know that what he calls us to, he provides. The second uh, issue was the calling of Venus Cote or our uh, support of her. Um, also, a unanimous uh, response to the Lord's uh, indication that he would have us to uh, lend our partnership and support to her. And uh, there are two of us on both of those teams, church council and the missions team. And, uh, but only one of us is responsible for a lot of the discussion and information that we had, and that's Patty Poyer. So I just want to acknowledge Patty's work. Uh, it has been excellent and has been vital to us, both on, a church, on the church council, as we process what this means to sponsor refugees in from Afghanistan, and also as we have been relating to uh, Venus. So I want to thank her also for her, for her very good work. I was driving from here to there this week when I was reminded of the remarkably superficial, misleading, and wrong, as in exactly backwards, totally upside down, and twisted ways that we tend to view, understand, expect, give, and receive love. The culprit in this case was Tina Turner and her song, What's Love Got to Do With It? What's love got to do with sex, seems to be her question, followed closely by what's love but a secondhand emotion. Hearing this song and many others from a biblical Christian worldview is awful. To be sure, there are worse examples we could give, but Tina had it all wrong. Love is not sex. Sex is not love. Love isn't merely or even primarily an emotion of any kind, secondhand or otherwise. 
Certainly in its proper context and expressions, genuine love is attended by many good, right, and true emotions intended by God and given to us in his divine design for us. But love itself, at least from a thoroughly biblical Christian point of view, is not an emotion. Some of the hardest things we will ever do will feel awful, but it will be an expression or they will be expressions of love. Then, of course, there's the late, not-so-great Jay Giles and his band's Love Stinks, contrary to a nasty rumor that Neil Creighton started. That is neither one of my favorite songs nor my view of the topic. And I'd just like to note that. Who can forget Diana Ross and Lionel Richie's Endless Love to go along with a very bad, even more superficial movie than by the same title that it supported? And Canadians, by the way, are not immune. Who can forget, even if you want to, the power of love, also the color of my love, both by, you know, Celine Dion, or how about Winnipeg's own Justin Bieber's Love Me? Obviously, biblical concepts of of love, and there are several, are none of that which often preoccupies our minds and our hearts, as well as our songwriting, apparently. The Bible makes very clear from beginning to end and through and through that love is no superficial matter or so easily captured in a song or a poem or even the whole Bible. And love is often costly. Here's just a representative smattering of what the Bible says about true love, which only and always flows from the heart of the one true and living God, who is himself love. In the third of his Ten Commandments, God said, quoting here now from Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, You shall not bow down to any man-made idols or false gods, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Verse 6, but showing steadfast love, this is chesed, It can't really be translated with one word or phrase, but it's, it's, it's deeply rooted in God's heart, this idea of steadfast love, enduring love. Uh, it is a deeply both uh, felt and acted uh, concept, this chesed, this steadfast love, by sh- but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. To the thousandth generation. We've been studying Psalm 118 over the last several weeks in our midweek Bible study. It begins and ends ends like this in verses 1 and verse 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord Yahweh, for he is good, for his steadfast love, his chesed, endures forever. Notice, won't you, the Lord is good. And his love endures forever because both of those aspects of his character, his goodness and his love, are under assault today. But the Lord, he is good and his love endures forever. Lamentations 3 verses 22 and 23 essentially sum up the Old Testament view of God's love. From verse 22, the steadfast love, chesed, Of the Lord Yahweh never fails. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. All of these represent the clear message of the Old Testament concerning the depth and breadth of God in Christ Jesus's, indeed the Lord God's, Yahweh Elohim's, unfailing, enduring, steadfast, and never-ending chesed. That is, his infinite love as a fundamental characteristic of who he is, who he has always been, who he will always be in Christ Jesus. Keeping this in mind, when we move to the New Testament, our understanding of God's infinite and unfailing love becomes even more well-defined and also narrower to a person, the very person of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus defined it. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Again in John, that was chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, moving ahead to, verse, to chapter 15 and verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Put that on a pop song. Verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. You did not choose me, but I choose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask from my Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus goes on later on in the chapter, verse 23. I in them, I'm sorry, this is chapter 17 rather, uh, what is sometimes called the high priestly prayer. Uh, I think this ought to be the Lord's prayer and the other should be the disciples' prayer, but that's a conversation for another time. I in them, Jesus praying to his Father, and you in me, that they may become perfectly or completely one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Finally, Romans 5, verses 6, 7, and 8, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, you may have a very good reason, a very good question, rather, at this point. Perhaps more than one, but at least this one. Why have we spent our first few minutes this morning on a representative sampling of the Bible's concepts of genuine love, which flows out of God's character, yes, and even that God is love himself, we get that from 1 John chapter 4 that we didn't read for time. But the word love never even occurs in our Genesis 2 text. Now I would suggest that while it doesn't actually occur in our Genesis 2 text, it's all over our Genesis 2 text. It's behind the text, not reading into, but 
it's behind the text. And the reason is this. The Lord God, who we meet in chapter 2 for the first time, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, created us uniquely. Male and female to image and represent himself on the earth. On the order of sending his son into the world to give himself up for his adopted children and chosen friends on the cross, God in Christ Jesus demonstrated his love by creating human beings as whole and interdependent persons. And over the next few minutes, I hope we'll see that the God who is love can do nothing apart from his sovereign goodness and his sovereign love, including his unique creation of human beings, male and female, to bear his own image and to represent himself on the earth. One more thing. It will be highly instructive for us to note and remember that God's good design for humanity created uniquely to image himself and represent himself on the earth, male and female, is an expression of his sovereign love before the fall of humanity into sin. We'll talk much more about the fall next Sunday, but, but the point I want us not to miss this morning is that while we're reading, what, sorry, what we're reading is God's own good and loving intention for our creation and not the thing we've made it to be over the course of thousands of years of sin. Now, there's a proper debate out there, out there, about whether the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, or even Genesis 1 through chapter 11, should be taken more as a truly historical account or more as myth. That is, a story to explain what we otherwise could not know, but is truthful in the sense that our tradition says it's so, and it provides us a good explanation for our beginnings. The debate tends to be about Genesis 1 through 11, and it's not merely an academic discussion. What I would call more biblical Christians and churches tend to be on the side of Genesis as history, what I would call less biblical Christians and churches tend to be on the side of myth. You'll not be surprised to learn that I take Genesis 1 through 11, and especially these first three chapters, as presented. That is, as a true account of God's creative activity, and especially his unique creation of human beings, male and female, to image himself and represent himself on the earth. Otherwise... Think about this now. Otherwise, it's evolution all the way down. To be sure, that's what's at stake. Are we human beings created uniquely, male and female, to image and represent God on the earth? Or are we animals? The Bible insists that we are not animals. We are human beings, created uniquely, male and female, for the specific purpose 
of imaging him and representing him on the earth. And if we are ever to be restored to that interdependent wholeness as male and female that God clearly intended from our beginning, then we must take this account very seriously and we will take this account in faith and hope that Jesus can restore us to it. So let's look specifically at Genesis chapter 2. So if you don't have it open before you, you may want to turn there. I invite you to do so. The first thing I would like for us to look at is this truth. In the biblical context, God separates his creation of human beings from the rest. Did you notice that? Because our creation was a unique created event, i.e. not like the others. Please note that the rest of creation is accounted for in essentially one chapter. Chapter 1, verses 1 through verse 25, and then picked it up again at verse 30 and on to chapter 2 and verse 4. But the creation of human beings takes up another whole chapter. Basically, chapter 1, verses 26 to 29, and then picking it up again from chapter 2, verse 5 to verse 25, the end of the chapter, with the fall of humanity into sin, taking up the third chapter and beyond, really. There is, in fact, theological meaning in that. It's not merely an observation of literary fact. If God causes to be recorded the whole of creation in one chapter-ish, and he causes to be recorded one aspect of his creation in another chapter-ish, we should take note of its singular importance relative to the whole. What's going on there? It must be significant. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord God, this is Yahweh Elohim, whom we first meet in chapter 2. It's Elohim all through chapter 1, as we noted. It's Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, through all of chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. One more thing is debated unnecessarily, I think, but we should be aware of it. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 do not present two creation accounts as is sometimes alleged to then justify the charge of incoherence in the record. But clearly this is one creation account in two parts. Basically, part one, chapter one, all of creation, and part two, chapter two, the specific creation of human beings as special, as different, as the only creatures in God's creation whom he has entrusted his image, and the stewardship of his earth. And the first thing I want us to get here is that we are not animals. We are human beings, and they are not the same. Human beings are not just the most highly evolved animals on the planet. 
We are created uniquely to image God on the earth. We are created uniquely to represent him on the earth. We are created male and female to do that together. In the biblical account, God separates his creation of human beings from the rest because our creation was a special, unique, creative event that is not like the others. Now, I want you to literally turn to your neighbor, even if it's your spouse or your sibling, and say, you are not an animal. Go ahead, do it. Now I want you to say to them, I am not an animal either. No human being is an animal. God created us special. Not because there's anything in us today, but because there was something in him in our creation that wanted to do something remarkable, even unique. From now on, we will live like human beings created uniquely in God's own image, male and female, to represent him on the earth in our place and time. That's what the Bible says. There's a second thing I think we can take from this this account, and I hope we will. A whole human life is a stewardship given to us by God while obeying his word. A whole human life is a stewardship given to us by God while obeying his word. We also see here in Genesis 2, verses 15, 16, and 17, that God's intention in creating mankind to image and represent him on the earth is a sacred partnership with him to care for the earth and everything on it or in it as well as a holy fellowship with himself. Look there with me, verses 15, 16, and 17. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? It wasn't just to eat bonbons and lay by the pool all day long, or the pond, or the lake, or the stream. He did so to work it. And to keep it. And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, we skipped over some text because I'm running out of time, but look back with me at verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I just want us to note, and we'll talk more about this next week, but I just want us to note that there were two trees in the middle or in the midst of the garden. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was permitted to our first father, we can put it that way, biologically speaking. And yet, he felt so deprived that he had to have 
that fruit from that forbidden tree. When he could have eaten forever from the tree of life and also every other green fruit or, or, or fruit and green plant. That situation is not unique to him and to her, but we tend in the same direction as well. So a whole human life, though, is a stewardship given to us by God while obeying his word. We'll talk a lot more about that next week. Let's go on to the third thing. Three, number three out of, out of four, so we're, we're getting close. Human beings are not whole alone. Hold that thought for a minute. Human beings are not whole alone. We have been created for intimate community. Now, before we look at the text, I want to clear something up. The church has gotten wrong basically forever, whether explicitly or far more often, for sure, implicitly. The church has done a lot of damage again and again with its good intentions, including on this point. You are not less of a person. I'm giving the opposite. I'm saying this is the truth. You are not less of a person, less of a human being created in God's image to represent him on the earth in your place and time if you do not have a mate. You are not less of a person, less of a human being. Now, I know that's easier for me to say than for you to hear and bear, but it's the God's honest truth. So first, I want to apologize to anyone who might be in this category if the church, any church, has communicated to you that you are in any way less of a person, less of a human being, if you are not mated with another human being of the opposite sex. We are only made whole by Christ and in Christ, and that's true whether we are single or married. Christ is the one who makes us whole, but it is not good for human beings to be alone. Why? Because we are not created to be alone. Human beings are not whole, alone. We have been created for intimate community. But secondly, I want to affirm us all that none of us are completed by a mate. That's also another mistake that the church has made either explicitly or implicitly. We are completed in Christ. Again, only Christ makes any of us whole. This presents us all with the more reason, made it or not, to enjoy the fellowship of God's family, the church. No one needs to be alone. No one needs to do life by themselves, herself or himself. We are bound together in holy fellowship with the Lord and each other by the Holy Spirit if there is any fellowship in us at all. Okay, so now let's look at verses 18 to 23. I'll basically just read it aloud, but I will give some editorial comment along the way because I just can't help myself. Verse 18. Then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. In other words, another human being. So the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up the space, uh, its space with, with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, had taken from the man... He made into a woman and brought her to the man. I want you to note three things very quickly. God identified Adam's need. God provided for Adam's need. And God literally brought the woman to the man. That's a pattern I, I, I think we should be following today. God identifies our need. We trust God to provide for our need. We trust God to bring what we need to us. And I could go on an eloquent rhapsody about how this is how my sweet wife Shelley came into my life. It really is. You have no idea how much, according to this pattern, it happened. And I commend it to you. Verse 23. The man appropriately broke out in poetry. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So human beings are not whole alone. We have been created for intimate community and God promises to provide for that need if we'll simply trust and be responsive to him. Finally, the fourth and last thing that I think we can take from this text, God created human beings uniquely, male and female, expressly, to enjoy a special quality of relationship described in verse 24 as one flesh designed and affirmed by God in the context of a lifelong covenant relationship of marriage. Now, anybody who's read their Bible very long and done any reading of, of biblical commentary will know that I went way beyond that text. This is a summary statement. I don't have the time to prove it, although I, I could do so very easily in Scripture. But I want you to hear God's intention here, which is verified throughout the rest of Scripture. God created human beings uniquely, male and female, expressly, I could say here deliberately, to enjoy a special quality of relationship, described here in verse 24 as one flesh, designed and affirmed by God in the context of a lifelong covenant relationship of marriage. Now, we've done our level best to ruin this beautiful thing that God has given us as a gift. And the church has done its part in making it less than it should have been.
But beyond the church, when we think or assume that we, we're, we're no more than animals, then all meaning is lost, literally. All meaning for life, all meaning in death, all meaning in marriage. If we're just animals, it doesn't mean anything. It's all personal choice. But you'll notice, please, that there was no preacher present in the uniting of the first man and the first woman in a lifelong covenant relationship of marriage. Some actually lose, use this literary fact and that there's no explicit marriage ceremony in the Bible is clear, and there isn't, but it's sometimes used to dismiss the covenant of marriage as a merely human construct and therefore irrelevant. In doing so, I'm afraid they deliberately miss, forget, ignore, or obfuscate. I just love that word, obfuscate, don't you? Obfuscate. This one fact. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim himself, presided over this first marriage between one man and one woman. That's what the text says, or implies at least. If God says, you're for each other, you're together, for life, you're for each other, together for life. And whether here at Bethesda or elsewhere, if God is presiding, there'll be no need for a preacher. Let's look at the last two verses. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Note that, please. We get that almost always backwards. We assume that the wife is coming to then cleave to the husband and his family, but that's not what this says. God's design is a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That communicates an utter dependence on her that those of us who have any sense knows is true in our families. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and, her, and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they. This is very similar. Look back at chapter 1. Very similar to chapter 1, verses 26 and following. Then God said, let us make man, Elohim said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion. Who is they? Well, it may be speaking here about more generally humanity, but I don't think so. I think this is an early reference to they, man and woman, male and female. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, verse 27, so Elohim created man in his own image. Okay, so he, he created Adam first. We just read that more specific account. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's just interesting to note here that we cannot image God alone either. We only image God when we are in community, just like he does, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they will become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I want to close with something that we can be mulling over for a good bit of time after we leave here this morning, I hope. In fact, it's the one topic in three parts 
And, and, and yes, okay, it's sex. Because we're not animals, but human beings. We'll call it what the text calls it, becoming one flesh. We'll call this 4A. God gave us becoming one flesh for purposes of, quoting here now from verse 28 of chapter 1, multiplying and fulfilling the earth, otherwise known as reproduction. So that's one outcome for a man and his wife, male and female, coming together to become one flesh, as God intended, and that is reproduction. Secondly, or 4B, God gave us becoming one flesh for purposes of becoming one flesh, otherwise known as sexual intimacy. This is not relegated to the, to the realm of sexual relations because if we, be, if we are becoming one flesh, that will extend out into all aspects of our relationship with our husband or with our wife. So we begin to think alike. We begin to value the same things. We begin to move in the same direction. This becoming one flesh is not merely sex. But that's where the text begins with it. And it's interesting to me that it says we, we shall become one flesh. It, it, it's, it's almost like it's saying this is an unraveling. And, and in fact, I, I believe it is. And those of us who have been married for any length of time know that's true. And then finally, this is 4C, and we're almost done here. God gave us becoming one flesh for purposes of enjoyment. Now, I promise, I, I, I realize that you can't get that directly from the text. The two things that the text specifically refers to are reproduction and becoming one flesh. But here's the thing. God could have made sex unenjoyable. And I mean that literally. He could have made it impossible to enjoy and merely dutiful for all. And he didn't. There is something about that that he has given to us as a gift. In the ideal, I understand. This is before the fall, I understand. These, these may have been, as some assume and assert, the most beautiful people ever created in the history of the world. I'm not so sure about that. We just read about Christ, and he had nothing of adornment for us to admire him or be attracted to him. So I'd be careful about assumptions like that. But at least they had no sin to contend with. And that's what verse 25 means. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Becoming one flesh for purposes of reproduction, becoming one flesh for purposes of becoming one flesh, and becoming one flesh for purposes of enjoyment, otherwise known, I think, as wedded bliss. I'm not sure about that, but it might be. This has been, we are created uniquely, male and female, in God's image to represent him on the earth. 
And our central truth has been the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, created us uniquely, male and female, to image and represent himself on the earth. Yuri actually provided me the postscript for this message. He met me as I came in this morning. He said, I just want to let you know, give you a heads up. I had an angry caller on the phone who doesn't like our sign. Which says simply, we are created uniquely, male and female. Early in the message, I said, this topic, this value is under assault. The goodness of God is under assault. We have to be aware of that. But we are to be light in the world and the salt of the earth. May we aspire individually and as God's people to such a high view of God, to such a high view of his creation, his whole creation, and to such a high view of our unique place in it. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for this, your true word, and we pray, Lord, that you would transform us to more and more reflect your ideal, to image you and to represent you on the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Speak, O Lord, may we be your people who glorify you and look to you alone, for you are good and you are true. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next time.